welcome to Act Your Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. My name is Corinne. And I'm Tasia. And today we are kicking off our massive summer binge, as we're calling it, a pun that does not really work unless you know how Sarah J. Mass spells her name. So when I just say it, it sounds weird, but we are incorporating her name into that. Uh, We are kicking off the binge by talking about the first book in the Court of Thrones and Roses series, which is Court of Thrones and Roses. And we are super excited to be joined again by multiple time guests on our podcast here, Aubrey. Hey, Aubrey. hey everyone. Hey. Thanks so much for joining us again uh, here to talk about this series as someone who uh, I, I think read it before both of us. I'm excited to talk with you as someone who's been with this series and these characters for a longer period of time and thus has had more time to think and quite frankly, probably obsess over (laughs) this world because I only read them like a little over a year ago and spent a lot of, a lot of time thinking about it given that it's only been a year. So uh, we're really excited to have you here today. Thanks. I'm excited to be back before we get into this book. What is everyone obsessing over these days, Tasia? I just read uh, 1500 Miles from the Sun by Johnny Garzavia, and it was incredible. It's on Kindle Unlimited, just throwing that out there um, for free if you have Kindle Unlimited. It is so good. It, it shot right up to the top of my list of like my favorite things that I've read so far this year. Basically, it's about uh, this kid in Texas, he is not out yet. His dad and his, you know, there, there are like some, there, there's like homophobia issues and, but he gets drunk at like a high school party one night and he comes out on Twitter basically. And so the whole school, he goes to a Catholic school. Um, everybody knows um, it's mostly okay, but his dad still doesn't know. There's a really great author's note in the beginning that kind of goes into trigger warnings and stuff in case it brings up because there's like homophobic language used against him. There's some like child abuse type of issues here, but um, the story is, is really beautiful and I cried at the end. But yeah, basically he, he comes out on Twitter and then this guy that he's like super crushing on over Twitter d- like slides into his DMs and he lives in LA and he's trying to... Um, go to college in LA. Like once he, you know, graduates and stuff, he wants to get away from Texas and he wants to get away from his family really. So he can start, you know, living his life. But um, yeah, so this kid in, in Los Angeles slides into his DMs and they begin kind of like a long distance thing. And it's all, it's very, very good. That sounds very good. And sounds right up this podcast's alley. In terms it very of much is. I have pinned it for, for, for future reference. Or, yeah. Good to know. Um, Aubrey, how about you? What are you into these days? I started reading the Bone Season series by mm-hmm. Samantha Shannon. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Some friends are like really into it. There are four books out now. I've just read the first one and I'm like halfway through the second. But it's this sort of alternative, alternate universe where um, there are clairvoyants in the world and they have like different types of skills and there's a fascist government in it's set in London, but it's called the like the Scion um, that has outlawed clairvoyance. So if you get caught, you go to the tower, the Tower of London, and 
the main character, Paige, is Irish and a dreamwalker, which means she can, like, walk into other people's dreamscapes, which is, like, your mental abilities. And she gets captured by Scion. And it turns out that there's this whole, like, they call them the Rephaim, I think, um, which sounds very, like, angelic to me, but they're from, like, another dimension. And they came and they set up um, the Scion and they take clairvoyance and use them basically as like slaves and to fight these zombie like creatures that have appeared um, and are a threat to everybody. So lots of like revolutionary aspects. She's a member of like an underworld syndicate. So there's like a whole criminal gang that she works with and people um, that she's trying to get back to. And then the Rafam that takes her in is um, training her to use her powers as well. Interesting. That's really cool. I know of several people, particularly friends of this podcast and people that we all know who love that series so much. And I really do want to get to it someday. It's 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 so funny because I read so many fantasy series, including this series that we're here to talk about today, like early in the pandemic, and I just like plowed through them all. And for some reason now, like having a four book fantasy series seems very daunting to me, as though I did not like to do that all the time last year. I want to get to them. They sound really good. Everyone who reads them likes them. And someday I do also want to um, tackle Priory of the Orange Tree. She's writing the second that behemoth. one. Right yeah. I know. Such a I but. bought Priory of the Orange Tree like when it was on sale through like Apple Books or whatever. And it was like $2.99. And I was like, okay, I'll purchase that. And then every time I look at it, I'm like, oh, but it's just, it's so long. So <laughs> sometimes it's easier though. when it's the ebook, it like tricks you. Cause you don't really like know how long, I mean, that one is kind of infamous for how <laughs> big it yeah. is, but sometimes it's helpful. Like I'll read a book on Kindle or whatever. And then I'll go to the bookstores like, oh, that was, that was really big. And I read that uh, whole yeah. thing. Might've been daunting to me if I knew what it looked like. I know it's funny, like the idea of starting an entire new series feels less daunting than reading that one book, even though it would probably take less time. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. That's very, very true. And what happened? I was in a bookstore and I was like, okay, I'll pick up the bone seeds. And finally, I wanted like a pool book. And, um, but yeah, it's really, the world building is really interesting. And um, I like Paige, the main character, because she's definitely not a perfect person. I mean, she's been working for a criminal for a while, but. Um, she's an interesting backstory. So cool. I like so an imperfect like main character. Yeah. No, that's cool. Um, I have, I guess, two obsessions. One is book related, but not an actual book. And it's kind of silly, but it's bringing me a lot of joy. So I'm going to say it. I recently purchased after having them in my cart online for a very long time. These delightful little things called book darts. Mm-hmm. Which I was telling Deja about. Aubrey, do you know what they are? I've seen them, I think. Okay. They are literally just like these metal little arrows. They're very thin. I have a pack of like 150 of them that you can use to mark a page in a book. It's not like a permanent marker, um, but it's just like something you slide onto the page in lieu of like a little sticky tab or something. So you can mark your favorite parts in like your fit in a physical book. Um, you can kind of see, sorry, listeners, you're not gonna be able to see this, but I'm holding <laughs> the camera to them. You can kind of see like, they're just very thin. Um, and like they, so they don't like bulk up your book at all. And they're just very pretty. My pack that I have is, 
a mixture of silver, gold, and rose gold. And I just like having something to mark up my physical books with that isn't a a sticky tab uh, that gets all like crushed up. Um, and they're just, like I said, they're very dainty. And I, I really liked marking up this book as I was reading it with them uh, in lieu of uh, using Post-it notes. So it's kind of a silly thing, but I'm glad I bought them. They're bringing me joy is what it is. And then I also, uh, in terms of actual books that I've read recently, I've gotten real into, I think one of, I guess it'd be accurate to say she's kind of like one of the more popular romance, historical romance novelists out there right now, Lisa Kleypas. I'd never read much of her stuff or any of her stuff before or much historical romance. Generally, Aubrey knows that this has been the year of the historical romance for me because I keep um, pounding her for recommendations. Uh, for me to read, uh, but I finally started reading Lisa Kleypas and her series, The Ravenals, is a great series if you like Bridgerton because it also is family related, but like better steamy content overall across the board. The Ravenal series starts with this distant cousin um, of the Ravenal family who is also a Ravenal. He is his cousin who is the heir to this earldom dies and he shows up at the estate and is determined to continue to live his life of leisure so he's like i'm just gonna sell off this estate it's floundering and too bad for the widow of my distant cousin who died even though they were only married three days she can find her own way as can the three sisters of my dearly departed distant cousin so he rolls in with his brother who's also ne'er-do-well and of course they both end up taking care of the estate and the guy who becomes the heir ends up marrying his the widow spoiler alert of the uh of the dearly departed cousin and so he gets he's the first ravenal and then ultimately each of the three sisters get their own books his brother gets a book there's some secret hidden ravenals that come out of the woodwork as um what is it? What is the term they always use in historicals? Like blow buys, <laughs> like the the illegitimate heirs, um, and it's the wrong just, side of the sheet. <laughs> exactly, uh, but it, it has like some you know again nice emotional growth from all the characters, great like familial dynamics, and I just really enjoyed them. And as often is the case with me in historicals, if I like one book, I just I inhale all of them really really quickly and i think i tore through like four of them in the last week and a half or so so healthy behavior for me uh, <laughs> but i really liked them so if you're into historicals at all she's a classic for a reason she's very popular for a reason and a great series so with that let's talk about Akatar. um i think we should have noted at the beginning too one of the things i think that is uh, misleading about Akatar is that this series it's not really YA it is often marketed as YA I think it is definitely more new adult than Throne of Glass Sarah J Mass's other big series is it's got some steamy content Feyre is how old 19 mm-hmm. so yeah that's a little older than your YA protagonist but as we've said when we've covered other new adult things on this podcast our podcast and we do what we want and we want to talk about Sarah J Mass and some fairies. It's what we want to do. Uh, but these are super, super popular books and there is a lot of really interesting things that she does um, in this first book in particular and then and as she goes through the series. So we like talking about those types of things here and 
we're going to do it. So that's your warning, I guess. You're like really beholden to our YA theme. Sorry. Come back in a few, <laughs> come back in a few weeks when we're done with this series. <laughs> um, as we always do, we will start off with a quick book summary of what happens in the first book. And then we will dive in. Asia. All right, buckle in. Farah and her family have fallen on very hard times. The job of hunting for food and providing for the family has fallen on Farah, the youngest of three daughters. One day while hunting in the woods, she spots a deer, but before she's able to shoot it, a giant wolf attacks it first. Suspecting the wolf might actually be a fae, she kills it before it can attack her and steal her prey. Soon after, however, a fairy in, the, in a beast form kicks down her cottage door and demands retribution for the murder of his friend, claiming that the treaty between humans and fairies requires a life for a life. Fera chooses to live the rest of her life in Prithiana's punishment. When she arrives, she discovers that the fairy, Tamlin, lives on a beautiful estate in the spring court and is the high lord. Everyone in the spring court, including Tamlin, wears masquerade masks, and Fera learns that there is a curse or blight on the lands. Fera is surprised when she is treated well and given every comfort. And she begins to trust and rely on Tamlin, and they grow closer and begin to form a romantic attachment. But one day, the High Lord of the Night Court, Resand, who is known to be close to Queen Amarantha, who is responsible for the blight, shows up unexpectedly and discovers Feyre's presence. Tamlin begs him not to tell Amarantha about, about her, but Resand warns them what a horrible fate lies in store for Feyre if Amarantha gets a hold of her. Tamlin decides that it is far too dangerous for Feyre to stay in Prithian, so he will send her home. She returns home to find her family living in luxury with no memory of fairy involvement, except for her oldest sister, Nesta, who remembers everything. After events in the mortal world leave her worried about Tamlin, she decides to go back to Prithian, where she learns that Amarantha stole power from each of the seven high lords and has ruled them ever since. But when Amarantha desired Tamlin and he rejected her, she put a curse on him and everyone in his lands, a curse that can only be lifted when a human that kills a fae because of hatred in her heart falls in love with him. The curse remains unbroken, however, because Farah never told Tamlin she loved him. Farah decides to go under the mountain to rescue Tamlin. She is quickly captured by Amarantha, who tells her the time frame on the curse has expired, but that if Farah can complete three trials, Amarantha will lift the curse on the spring court and free all of Prithian from her dominion. But if Farah can solve a riddle, Amarantha will free them immediately. After being badly wounded in the first task, Farah reluctantly accepts Rhysand's bargain. He will heal her and save her if she agrees to stay with him at the night court for one week out of every month for the rest of her life. After their deal is in place, Rhysand forces Farah to be his escort to the nightly parties under the mountain where he drugs her with fairy wine that makes her dance for him all night in front of everyone. After helping her complete the second task, Rhysand admits to her that he wants her to win so Amarantha can be destroyed. Fair's last task is to kill three innocent fairies whose heads are covered so she doesn't know their identities. She feels terrible guilt but wants to save Tamlin and the rest of the Prithians, so she reluctantly kills the first two. The third one, she realizes, is Tamlin himself. She remembers that there is still part of the curse that no one has been able to tell her and also recalls hearing and passing that Tamlin's heart is made of stone. Knowing this, Farah stabs Tamlin. It works and Tamlin lives, but Amarantha is furious at having been bested. She announces that she never said when she would free everyone from the curse and refuses to do it. She then begins to attack Pharaoh, but then Pharaoh is able to solve the riddle that Amarantha promised would lead to instant freedom. As soon as she solves it, everyone is free, but Amarantha breaks Pharaoh's neck and kills her. Tamlin attacks Amarantha and kills her. In gratitude for Pharaoh's efforts, all the high lords give Pharaoh a small piece of their magic to restore her life and turn her into a high fae. Pharaoh is deeply traumatized after everything she's been through, but she's reunited with Tamlin and he is taking her back to the spring court. Before she leaves, Rhysand confronts her to remind her of their deal, but something suddenly seems to shock and disturb him, and he vanishes. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these are going to be long summaries because these are long books. 
So I think before we dive into anything, I think we wanted to point out that this book in particular, more than really any first book in a series, is very deeply affected by the rest of the series and really perspectives. I think all of our perspectives change on it as the series goes on. And so we're going to try very hard to talk first about this book in terms of spoiler-free content and our initial impressions the first time we read it, not knowing what's going on. And then we're going to have a spoiler section where we talk about how this book plays into the larger series and some things that it sets up for the rest of the series. Uh, because it, and again, we're going to try really hard and it might be a very brief non-spoiler section because it's hard to unring the bell of what we know already having read the whole thing. So fair, fair warning for that. We'll give a, a big warning when we're going to jump into the spoiler section. I think one of the things we wanted to talk about first, or I did at least, because it really informed my read of this book the first time is Sarah J. Mast generally and her books and how I think we all we all love them. We're here to talk about them, but they are not in many ways things that we seek out and enjoy on a lot of other things we've covered on this podcast. They're not diverse. They're not queer. They're just very white and heteronormative. Aggressively heterosexual. Yeah. Yeah. And so that for me, the first time I read this book was hard for me because I think particularly Tamlin is a very, just like a, a very overly masculine, masculine, aggressive type character that does not appeal to me generally. He's got his good moments, I think, for sure in this first book, but I had a little bit of a hard time like getting fully immersed in it. I think throwing down just kind of a general disclaimer on our ongoing or what will be our ongoing coverage of Sarah J. Mass is um, just addressing the elephant in the room that is her reputation as an author, which is lack of diversity, like you said, and also kind of harmful diversity at times mm-hmm. or harmful representation, sorry, at times. And also that there tends to sometimes be like a romanticization of a romantic. Let me try that again. There also tends to be like romanticizing of toxic relationship dynamics or toxic men in particular in her books. Uh, Like I said, I think this kind of goes down to like the aggressive heterosexuality of these books. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's just something to keep in mind going forward. We're covering these books because we do find them fun and enjoyable. Um, Not because we think that there's nothing to be heavily critiqued in here. Yeah. I think we're like, you know, it's possible, I think to critically engage with something Mm -hmm. and acknowledge its flaws while also enjoying Enjoying it. it. And and it's not that we think that this series has nothing in the way of substance. It actually has a lot of like really good substance too, which we'll get into as we progress through the series, but it's hard to talk about these books without, talking about it. And I think we, the three of us in particular, how we know each other and just our general life bubbles might look at particularly, you know, this book, this first book too, and, and kind of like immediately kind of grapple with some of those things and say, wow, like some of these things, I don't, I don't care for this. This is, Mm -hmm. this seems a little wrong to me. And, and yet all of us, I think, you know, when the, 
fifth book in the series came out earlier this year. We all read it very quickly. You know, we're yeah. all, we're very like into it. So, and it's um, like we, we've said before on this podcast, there's nothing wrong with engaging in problematic media, you know, but we are going to talk about it. So exactly. just, and we're still going to like that out there swoon and yeah. like talk about all the things we love yeah. about too. But we obviously still like it. We would not be talking about it if we didn't, but just, you know, fair warning, we might occasionally rip on it too. Exactly. So I already said, I guess, a little bit about what my initial thoughts were, and we'll dive into it more specifically as we talk about this book. But what were your two thoughts on this the first time you read it? If you can recall, Aubrey, you were saying before we started recording, I think you read it as it was coming out back in like, what, 2016 or something? I think this book came out. Is it? Oh, I see. When did it come out? Yeah, I, I did. I had been reading the Throne of Glass books because... One of my former students actually like recommended them to me as something to read. And she and I have a lot of similar tastes. And so while waiting for more Throne of Glass books, because that series is also really long. Yeah. Thorn of, A Court of Throne of Roses came out. And so I picked it up um, and I am a person who is always here for like a fairy tale retelling. And it got sold as sort of a Beauty and the Beast retelling. And we might talk about this more later because I think there's actually some other like myths and fairy tales that are playing a larger role in this. And, you know, I was not, I feel like some of Mass's tropes like get sort of established in this series that I wasn't sure about from just reading Throne of Glass. And I enjoyed it. It's hard to like go back and remember exactly sure. how I felt about yeah. it. I enjoyed it enough that I definitely was like ready to pick up the next books in the series. Um, I love talking to people about. about these books because all of us are like, are they good? Maybe not. No, but are they fun? Like, are we going to read the next one immediately? Yes, of course. Like they're addictive. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get what you're saying though, Aubrey, because I have after I read all this series, I did read all of Throne of Glass, and I get what you mean, though. Teja, you have not read Throne of Glass yet, but stylistically, there's a lot that's very different about Throne of Glass. Throne of Glass is way more, like, has more of a, a fantasy element running through that's more critical, I think, to all of the characters versus this series is more about the romance in a lot of ways, and the mm-hmm. fantasy plot is secondary. And so some of the things that do become, like, kind of, math ticks that come out, I guess, are really at the forefront in this book because it is romance focused. So we get in some of those things that bother us, I think, to ultimately some of the more like aggressively heteronormative things, the, the use of she doesn't do it so much in this book. I was surprised, but like referring to like the fae men as males, which just is grating to me, things like that come up more in this series. And yeah, it is a little bit like we go to Throne of Glass, it's kind of whiplash because it does feel stylistically different in a lot of ways. Um, Tasia, what did you think the first time you read this? So I read these years ago too. I think probably in, I want to say 2017, 2016. And I, I read them over like, I think I, I checked my, cause I read them on audiobook and I checked the dates and it was just like one after the other, like one per day or something, or like a day and a half, however long it took to listen to them. And then afterwards I returned them, which means that I didn't really like them. But I also just like, normally if I, I would read one and I'd be like, I don't care for this, I would stop. But I did the entire series and then later returned them thinking, oh, I'm not going to listen to this again. So again, it was one of those things where it was like, I I felt my I felt myself kind of rolling my eyes through a lot of it, but still not being able to stop. 
So there's, there is something very like compulsively likable about it. It's, and it's been years. And I think I'm coming at it with like a different perspective almost this time. So I, I am really interested to see how I feel about it this time. Uh, when I reread this book, I enjoyed it more than I was expecting to. Yeah, I liked it more on reread than I did initially. And again, I think we'll talk in the spoiler section about why. But I at the time, I I think to you need to like know your expectations a little bit more going in. And as my first Sarah J. Mass book, I didn't know that. And so after coming off of, I think I might've just come off of like reading the Grisha verse for the first time. It's very, it's very different than that. And, and I think knowing what you're going into is very important for this series. Yeah. Uh, and it benefits from really kind of having a reckoning with yourself of what it's going to be. Just appreciating it for what it is and not expecting it to be something else. Yeah, exactly. And again, as we're going to talk about, there's a lot, there's more here that you would think that there is after just like reading this first book. So, Aubrey, you mentioned to some of like how this, how you were drawn to this because, you know, it's clear comparison is to be and Beast and it was marketed in that way. I would love to hear from you as our like resident fairy tale lore person. Tell us all about some of these, these things and your thoughts, especially as you're reading, like how it plays on Beauty and the Beast and some other myths and legends you have noted down here. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it was marketed as Beauty and the Beast. And I think it, when you read it, the idea that like, there's a transgression, a beast comes and takes Farah as like payment for that transgression. And then the key to breaking the curse is that she has to fall in love with him. Um, that's very Beauty and the Beast. I mean, like, yeah, we've all seen the Disney movie like a million times. You he literally know. busts in in beast form. Like. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the big difference here is that he is also like, she can tell like a beautiful person. So um, it's more, but like his habits are just abrasive and a little bit more beast, like when he's around her at times. So you get it almost as more like the personality than what he looks like all the time, other than, you know, that he's got claws sometimes. And he has um, the mask. Yes. And he has the mask. Oh man, the mask. So silly. Every time I like someone mentioned the mask again, I would have for- I f- would forget. And then I'd be like, oh yeah, all these people are wearing masks. She has no idea what his like upper half of his face looks like. Yeah. I'm like, she's making out with him with a mask on. That feels uncomfortable, it but does you know, feel uncomfortable <laughs> for everyone involved. But yeah. anyway. Yeah. But it's interesting because so obviously the main character's name is Tamlin and the ballad of Tamlin is like a Scottish a Scottish ballad about a person named Tamlin who is fae or is an elf and is pledged to the fairy queen. And he's got seven years. And then like every seven years, the fairy queen makes a sacrifice to hell, which is basically oh. what happens. And Jenny is the the woman in the ballad. She keeps going. She's told not to go to his house and not to pick the roses. And she goes and she falls in love and she gets pregnant and she ends the ballad. Like she can only save him because she loves him. And it's, you know, different. She has to pull him off a horse and like hold on to him as he changes different shapes and not let go, even as he turns into like a burning brand and things like that. And then she wins him from the fairy queen and breaks his like service to her that way. 
I never had heard of that. Honestly, I I'm I have no knowledge of this. That's why uh, you're a queen of of this stuff, Aubrey. Because I had, I had never heard of it, and like I mean, she really late. She went with it by naming him Tamlin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's more obscure. But like at the moment that she named him Tamlin, I was like, oh, okay, so it makes sense. And then you know the other two things that I think she's really pulling on are you know the myth of Cupid and Psyche, where Psyche thinks that the monster is going to kill her who takes her and then, you know, eventually falls in love and she goes, she has to go rescue him from or earn him back from Venus. And so Venus gives her multiple challenges that she has to complete. And there's like a a whole bunch of them and most of them don't line up, but she does the sorting of lentils and grains, which is something that Farrah has to do underground is directly taken from that myth. Like that's one of the things that she has to do. And East of the Sun, West of the Moon, I think is a little bit more similar to Cupid and Psyche where she has to journey to save her beast once she realizes what happened. In both cases, like they don't do what they're supposed to do to break the curse and they get in trouble and he has to go and he's going to have to marry a, a troll princess because of she didn't win. And she gets three nights to spend with him and to like has to keep him awake and convince him to win him back from the troll princess um, to break it. So you see, like, I always think the number three is really significant. Like it shows up a lot in myths and fairy tales. And so Farah has three challenges. Like the girl has three nights as well. Yeah. Um, It's kind of interesting to see where she's pulling from all these things. And East of the Sun, West of the Moon, Cuban and Psyche and Beauty and the Beast are all related because in all of them, He's a beast. I mean, he's a white bear in East of the Sun, West of the Moon. He's a, I think he's a dragon in Cupid and Psyche. He looks like a monster. And the key is that she has to like fall in love with him, either last a certain amount of time without trying to see what he looks like at night when he comes to her or, um, you know, fall in love with him before a particular amount of time without knowing what he really looks like and who he really is. And so you kind of get that with the mask, even that she has to fall in love with him without seeing him completely for himself. So I think it's an interesting way to pull those sort of ideas in and then take, you know, like fairy mythology and stuff about the Fae and wrap it all together in like a new story. Yeah. And I do think it it feels in a lot of ways, like the romance is a little different than like my most familiarity is with Beauty and the Beast. And it feels like their love story and like why they end up falling in love with each other is a little different than Beauty and the Beast, which I appreciate. And it's, so it's not a total like one for one copy, which is good. And, you know, Beauty and the Beast ends like on a much happier note of her breaking the curse. And then like you really not having familiarity with the other myths that you talked about. Like when I first read this, I was like, oh, oh, wow. Okay. We're, we're going under the mountain. Like things are happening here. It uh, is a very like dark, but very propulsive back half to this book. Uh, and it took a turn that I, as a novice for some of these things, was like very much not expecting. So let's then, I think, maybe dive into, I guess, the the plot itself. And we kind of already started to talk about Farah, Tamlin. They're, you know, they're the big duo here in this story. And what our thoughts are on on both of them as characters. Um, I guess we'll start with Farah. She's our POV character. And is uh, the star of the show in a lot of ways. Personally, Farrah's not like one of my all-time favorite fantasy heroines by any means. 
just a little bit of a passive heroine in that obviously her going under the mountain is like a very active thing that she does an active step that she takes. But for this book, and I think a lot of the series going forward, she kind of is adapting to what is happening to her versus being proactive about in, enacting change. So I, I always have struggled to like connect with her a little bit. She's got great moments in this book to be sure, uh, but she's a little bit yeah, it's passive for me. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I had um, kind of a hard time getting behind her as a heroine. I have a lot of issues with with her, especially in the beginning. Um, she has taken it upon herself, and, it, and it's it's framed as like a very selfless act, right? Where she is the youngest daughter, but she's the one who is the sole breadwinner. She hunts for her family. She seems to do everything. She goes to the markets, and she haggles and she is she clothes feeds takes care of her entire family none of them do anything and it's it's very cinderella-y right and and i feel like it's kind of a, a situation where she's like martyring herself a little bit because what it really feels like is that she's incapable of asking for help like at one point elaine her middle sister comes to her like after she's brought a deer home and she's like oh how long will it take you to clean it and Feyre thinks to herself, like, oh, yeah, how long I will take. How, you know, nobody offers help. Nobody does anything, blah, 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 blah. But she's not, like, I. she's allowing her family to use her as a doormat. She's enabling their, their weakness, basically, and their inability to do anything for themselves, putting everything on herself, but also not really asking for help. Like, once she finally gives, I think she asks Nesta to chop wood or something. And Nesta complains about it, but she does it because Farah gives her an ultimatum and is like, listen, do this. And she really puts her foot down and then it gets done. So, you know what, maybe do that all the time and <laughs> maybe yeah. don't martyr yourself because she, she sits around and she feels really sorry for herself about it and, and looks at herself as like this very kind of walked upon abused person because I mean, but the truth is she's put herself in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would like more moments from her early on to like give her like those moments of like strength and po position of power within her family. And we don't get it. You know, it's funny, like this, we said this is long and it is a long book, but not really compared to we know how long some of uh, <laughs> the books in the series and other books by Sarah J. Mass like can be. And so I feel like they could have two, and we'll talk about the sister dynamic too, because that's a big thing going forward in the books is like the beginning is very fast she's taken by tamlin very fast so you don't get a ton to establish those family dynamics which i think are really important going forward and so the reader has to do a lot and i think it, uh, of interpretation as to like what those things mean and how their relationships with her family actually are because she doesn't really paint it out for us early on it's really just more like okay no like we're we're taking uh we're, we're taking her away to Prithian now and off she goes. <laughs> so I, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's a little frustrating to totally like get behind her from the beginning. One thing I think about though, with that, I mean, I think Sarah is at times like very passive when it comes to standing up for herself in a way that she's not for people that she cares about. Like that's the only time she's really active. But I think one thing is that, she is so young. I mean, she's like only 19 in this yeah. book and her mom died. I can't remember how young she was. She was her like mom eight. Died. Yeah. And her mom makes 
her promise to take care of her sisters and her father. And I think in some ways like that, which is a ridiculous thing to ask of an eight-year-old child, warps the way she sees like what she's supposed to be doing. Like that's her only sort of driving force is taking care of them for so long that I don't think she's learned that like sometimes they do have to help take care of themselves too. Right. Because she's not only is she enabling them to just kind of sit around and do nothing while she does everything. Like she's teaching them how to treat her Mm -hmm. and, and also kind of doing them a major disservice by not forcing them to do stuff for themselves. Because then when she's taken away, of course she panics. Of course she's like, Oh my God, what's going to happen to my family without me? They will die. They will literally die without me. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, we set the precedent here, right? Like you could have been teaching them these things this whole time or making them learn with you or whatever, you know, just because you made this vow to your mother to take care of them does not mean that you, I mean, part of taking care of them would be teaching them how to take care of themselves because that's what parents do, right? To take care of their children. They teach those children how to take care of themselves. That is what parenthood is. Absolutely. Pharaoh should never have been put in that position as the youngest child, as like a, a tiny child, um, it's, it's awful and it's ridiculous, but yeah, I mean, she is enabling them. Yeah. One thing I do like about Pharaoh before she's taken, and I think it's kind of an underrated thing that comes up in this book is the fact that Farah has this guy that she basically is using for sex. And you know what? Love that for her. Mm-hmm. She's got a stressful life and she has no qualms about just getting some when she needs some. And I think that that's really important. A lot of times in fantasy, it's like you're, 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 we meet your one person, your soulmate, and that's who you're with. And it's nice to have that sort of, I guess, sex positivity here. It, yeah. it's, it's never a big deal. Um, even to his credit, Tamlin wonders whether she's in love with him, but he's never even really particularly like jealous uh, uh, about it. And so I kind of like that. Yeah, I totally agree that it is kind of like a surprisingly sex positive take here. And and you don't get a lot of that in fantasy, like you were saying, is it's always like, oh, this is the soulmate. This is the one true love. It's like, well, that's not reality. And sure, we're not reading fantasy to stick strictly with like real (laughs) concepts like that. But it is good, I I think, especially for younger readers to see that like, you know, that, that that's a normal thing to have multiple partners or something before you find your, your person. Yeah. 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 I like that. And one of the things too, yeah, I agree with everything we already said about Pharaoh, but I did on reread, I guess, empathize with her more when she gets to the spring court at first, like the first time I read it, I was kind of like, she was kind of pushing back a little, a little bit in a way that didn't really seem believable for me, but this time around, it definitely was like, oh no, I get like why you're, you're scared. You know, you, the, the book kind of just tells you how much humans hate the Fae. You don't like see a ton of it. So you're kind of taking that all at face value. But I think a lot of her thoughts, like when she comes to spring court and she's very, you know, she's awed by its beauty, but she's still very skeptical of everything. And like her reactions to things given what I know about her spending five books with her at this point make total sense that like where she's coming from, she, she reacts in a way that makes a lot of sense to me in just in terms of how she's processing everything and like her initial trepidation to trust Tamlin and then why she ends up trusting him more as we go through. I thought that that all 
does make sense to me, despite the fact that I guess now we maybe can turn to Tamlin. I have issues <laughs> with with Tamlin. So the first time I read this book, I, again, I talked about it a little bit up top. I just, I can't, I, Tamlin has some good moments in this book for sure. There's just a few things that I really, that re- really set me on edge the first time I read this book, and particularly the Kalan Mai scene where he uh, attacks Vera essentially, and then the next day like blames her for it because she didn't stay in her room. It's a really, it's a hard thing to read, and it's kind of, it's a hot moment, right? Like she does a really good job of like showing uh, of writing steam, like in in sexy moments. It's great, but that for me was something I couldn't get like the taste out of my mouth. And if, if it weren't for encouragement from other friends who had read the book, I, I don't know how much I would have been willing to move forward. Cause that just, that hard time with it. I don't know. Yeah. I think um, my biggest Tamlin, like he, he really feels kind of like a walking red flag, right? Um, it's his temper, his temper issues. The, the, any slight inconvenience, any hearing any news that upsets him and he physically destroys something near like whatever's around him and it's never framed in a way where it's like wow this guy's got some issues about you know like he's he's needs to like chill it's always just like oh look at this like manly man's temper and like how strong he is and and um i don't know i i think these violent outbursts are uh it's like you in danger girl yeah i've dated that guy you don't date the guy that punches walls don't do it <laughs> Yeah. And that's the thing I think too, as I mentioned before about how we're kind of like in a bubble and I think we take for granted, not that I feel like I'm this like paragon of like knowledge of what like a healthy relationship should be, but I feel like I'm just aware of these types of red flags and I don't know that necessarily everyone is. And I, and I do think that's, I I have this problem sometimes with other romance novels I read too, where this type of behavior like this again aggressively male dominant type personalities just don't work for me and they can work and there's things about where this series go that in real life I would never be on board with but I like in this in this context but this is not Tamlin is not it for me and it's not it's that scene is like the worst part of it to me but there's also like he like takes the her list of words because favorite can't read or write and he, she's trying to learn words and he like takes it and like brings it to a group of people and they write like silly poems off about it and like that just feels kind of unnecessarily mean and like i just there's little moments like that that it just it doesn't work for me it's not like a personal thing that i like yeah guy. it feels like very old school romance tropey mm-hmm. with him in a way that's not like undercutting it at any point in the book, but like kind of embracing it. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, there's some comments about his father and his brothers um, growing up that are supposed to make you think that like a Tamlin in many ways is like a product of a pretty awful yeah. family as well. So, um, you know, I'm sympathetic that like maybe in some ways he's doing the best that he can with what he grew up with and like trying to be better, but not always succeeding. But yeah, it's just not, 
it's not super well developed, I think, in these books. Yeah. Like, I think it's there. Like, she's got some ideas about like trauma and abuse and the way that it affects people as they grow up. And I just, and it's true there in Tamlin and in Farah and sort of like the neglect that she has. And then in Lucian, too, as like a side character. And I, I don't know that she's super successful with that, um, honestly. Yeah. I, that number thing in this book, I think she, you know, what's fascinating about this series is I think each book gets better in dealing with some of the things that are laid out here in terms of, of those things. But yeah, I agree. This book's too, too bare bones. It like touches on it just a little bit, but not enough. I don't think to really fully flesh out why these characters are the way they are. Sorry, Tasia, what were you going to say? Uh, yeah, no, another thing about Tamlin, and I think we'll talk about this more when we talk about the under the mountain stuff um, is that like we mentioned with Pharaoh being kind of a passive heroine, I, he feels really passive. He is essentially, I think at one point, uh, Reese tells him, you know, at least I haven't bided my time among the hedges and the flowers while the, while the world has gone to hell. And that's essentially what Tamlin's been doing. Like he's, he spends the entire book mostly just feeling sorry for himself and, yeah. and then having these violent outbursts when things don't go his way. He feels like kind of a petulant, passive brat. And a, it's just not something that's like paired with his uh, kind of aggressive male, like dominant, like it just his whole presence. It's just not a good, it doesn't work for me as like a romantic yeah. hero. Yeah. And one of the things too, one of the things Aubrey, you mentioned was, you know, he's doing the best he can, like given where he came from and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I think he's also doing the best he can with the confines of the curse that he's under. However, in regards to Farah, yeah, but I mean, I think in general, yeah, no, I mean, but but what I was going to say was though it it does feel, and I don't know to what extent this is like so this is conscious, a conscious decision on the part of Sarah J. Mass to put this in here, but like the fact that he can't tell her so much about the curse, like, really makes a lot of their relationship in some ways feel like gaslighting, <laughs> like, because he, he can't tell her and I get why he can't tell her. So I don't know how much she's like pushing back on that common theme in all the myths that we just talked about of like, well, you need to fall in love with this person. Well, there's obviously has to be some manipulation here. And he does, he has to manipulate her to get her there in the first place. He lies about this treaty where it's one person. You kill a fae, you have to come like, that's a lie. Like, that's just not true. He has to get someone there to even have the chance to fall in love. And I do and manipulated her into shooting his friend in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, they do have moments where like, I, I, I'm more sympathetic in some moments versus the others. Like, obviously, he can't tell her the facts of the curse, but then he does things like glamour all the servant fairies so she doesn't get like overwhelmed at what the world looks like. And that feels like too manipulative to me. Um, it's like n- not necessary to the confines of the curse, but he's doing it because like I have to shield her from this to even have a chance at her falling in love with me. Right. So to what extent is their love real? And I do think. You know, they do have a lot of moments where they've, they've obviously both been through a lot and they see the good in each other that they mm-hmm. can't see in themselves. And I think that that it's, a, it's an important thing for them both to have. But like then I think because it doesn't feel as like strong of a foundation for all those reasons, like the whole idea of her going under the mountain is just like... Oh God, really? Like, this is what yeah. we're gonna do? You're gonna like sacrifice yourself for this, right? Because she's like at, at several points being like literally beaten to death, and and her 
the one request made of her is that she admit that she doesn't love Tamlin. She's like, that's the only thing I won't do. And I'm like, why? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, why? It's good for plot reasons and for future book reasons. Like everything happened that needed to happen. But like, you know, in the moment you're like, okay, but, but why? No shade at all on people who like love those types of stories. We love love. Like we love swooning. We love romance. We love all of those things. But like for it to just be like, love is the thing I will sacrifice my life for. Is just a little, like, I don't need to read that story anymore. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think one thing that Sarah J Mass is kind of bad about is that she is a, a teller, not a shower. So, um, yeah. you know, they say like in writing, like you need to show, not tell, but what Sarah does a lot of the time is just, she tells you that these people are in love. So you have to believe it. And she does it. She, other couples, like not everybody in all of her books is like that. We'll yeah. see later on that, you know, there are, there are very good ships in here to go for, but this is just not one of them for me. Yeah. I yeah. Do think it's just really, really shallow. And Tamlin is really passive. I mean, even before under the mountain, the fact that he just like, doesn't try to do anything to break the curse for years, like he just mm-hmm. stops. And I know that like, part of it is he's protecting his sentries, but also like, there are so many people affected by this curse, Tamlin. Like, it's not just you. Maybe you should do something. Um, And these people want to do something and you're like holding them back, like making the decision about what risk they're allowed to take um, and just doing nothing instead. Like, that's his default. And And I I think that looks especially bad when you compare him to Reese, who we learn, you know, is working the long game here. Like, yes, he has agreed to attach himself to Amarantha, but he is not, you know, everything that he does is working towards a different end than that. Mm -hmm. Like Tamlin could have been doing shit like that the entire time. Yeah. And then like one of my more romantic moments that I'll I'll give Tamlin credit for is that he does, he loves Tara enough that he is going to sacrifice everything to keep her safe and he sends her home he he loves her a lot however it's like oh like you're, you're just gonna like fuck all of purity in that yeah i feel like yeah. that, that's like a lose-lose situation for him because if he had kept her there until she said i loved you and, and could have lifted the curse and fixed like all of prithian right um, obviously a, a good, a good thing to do, but we would have been mad at him in that case too, because then he's manipulating her into staying so that she can lift the curse, um, and not, you know, intentionally putting her out of harm's way. So that, I feel like that's a very like lose, lose situation for him at that yeah. point. But I do think that the better, like the more responsible thing to do would definitely have been to like keep her there and yeah. keep her another day man. another let day it, right yeah wait until the last second and then send her off yeah, yeah. exactly you know. and that's about you it's about poor alice and her you know little nephew his entire course until yeah. like it's everybody well then it makes it and and i'm just realizing this now it makes it i'm already frustrated with him for this but it makes it even harder to stomach how he then just sits there the entire time under the mountain and does nothing to try to save her like dude you were gonna let everyone like be under amarantha's rule for all time like to save farah and then farah comes in and you are acting so stoic that she thinks you're under some magic spell and solutions like no, no, he's just like not letting her know what bothers him about it, like how she's torturing you, Farah. I mean, like you could be doing things, you could be plotting with Lucian behind the scenes. Like you've got friends, you got yeah. people. 
do something. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the moment he does get her alone, he's just like, I need to have sex with you right now. Like, he uses that one chance to, to literally mark his territory yeah. instead of to like, even just comfort her without like that physical kind to, to be like, listen, I'm here. Like, we're going to get out of this. No, he just goes right to sucking face and rubbing his hands all over her body, messing up the body paint yeah. that is protecting him and Farah from Amarantha. And so Reese has to step in and like save both of their asses. And it's literally just because he was jealous. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't believe I'm playing devil's advocate for Tamlin here right now. <laughs> I really feel like it, it does seem it's this a night before the final challenge. It doesn't seem like things are going to go great going forward. So I can see how maybe like if you don't think there's a way out, like you're just like, I'm going to have this like last moment with you. But the fact that he doesn't even like pause to say like, I love you until after Reese comes in and is like, get out. Like you have to go. She's going to come. <laughs> He's like, you idiots. Yeah. He, like, yeah. So mad at them in that moment. It's so funny. So, yeah. I mean, Farrah's best moments though are under the mountain. I think the first challenge, brilliant. Proud of her. That's mm-hmm. our girl. Trap that worm. Love oh, it. It's the best. Yeah. It's great. The the first challenge is really, really, really good. The second one is uh, very scary. She doesn't know how to read. And thank God for Reese coming in to guide her way. And then the third challenge is just awful, awful mm-hmm. to, to read. Uh, the first time I read, I was like, I was horrified for her that she had to do that and that she was faced with mm-hmm. that face. And get why she 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 did what she had to, to save all those people. Having yeah. to hear like the those fairies families like cry oh while she's oh man. Oh. It was it was very wise of um of Sarah to write the second fairy kind of being like accepting. Yeah. Just, like just like do it. And I'm like, okay, it, that was helpful to me as a because if they were both like a huge mess, I would have been even more of a huge mess uh than I was. Let's see here. What else non-spoilery can we talk about? Should we talk about refans? Yeah. I keep thinking about that TikTok you sent me to remember when thinks his name is Rice, like Rice. Yeah. No, I don't, <laughs> don't under I don't I don't get that reading of his name, but you know oh, it man, happens. Sure. And there's um, one Asian guide in the back of this book too. So yeah. <laughs> the answers were there for you, everyone. It's Reese. Y'all just want to make fun of his name. That's that's fine. That's fine. A ridiculous name. Um, Tasia and I both know people who in the last year have named their human children Reese R H Y S. I'm like, that's do you Just know no, no connection no like, connection okay. to the books either huh and it's kind of a pretentious name to i'm like that that kid life. one day is gonna meet like an uber fan girl and just maybe it'll work yeah. for him i know like i mean right speaking of yeah things so working about, for us let's talk about recent yeah so you know he's villainous he's, he's depicted and told affairs told by uh, Lucian and Tamlin that he is the bad guy. He's Amaranthus whore. He is the high lord of the night court, which is very, very evil. And uh, despite all of that, he provides assistance to Farah for a lot of her time under the mountain. And he really and before. Is, Yeah. Yeah. No. Right. In terms of uh, giving Amarantha what he knows is a fake name. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he does some good things. I still don't, though, and this goes again to, like, my feelings on this book the first time I read it. I 
didn't like rescind either totally because I don't love that he drugs her every yeah. night and makes her dress like a whore and like oh good it's really not good um, dancing for him all night it's very I, I don't yeah and he, and here's the thing I don't know this might be a future book thing that I don't like I said it's been years since I read these books so I don't have the clearest memory of what happens later like explanation for why he does that part I understand why he does literally everything else I don't understand why he makes her dance for him every there's night. never there's never a good explanation from to me I don't get why he does any of that like just to distract Amarantha like why like we'll just leave Feyre in her cell why is, is he she trying to, to come build, out is he trying to build Tamlin up like build up his rage so that if there's an opportunity then he will just completely fly off the handle and tear her to shreds. Yeah, maybe. Um, or is it like, because he is spending time with Farah and helping her, he wants to have cover for it. Maybe. maybe. I think, I think that might be part of it. And then he drugs her so that she just doesn't have to have deal to with like with everything it, yeah. going on there. Because mm-hmm. he does, it does make a point that like, he does have her dance, but like his hand marks are only like on her hips. Yeah. He never like touches her anywhere. It's the drugging for yeah. me. It's, I mm-hmm. don't the drugging it's, I have a really great. hard time with. But other than that, he, <laughs> my <laughs> notes literally say the drugging isn't very cash money. <laughs> I don't know what I was on right. writing my notes. Um, <laughs> but he, yeah, he provides her with a lot, a lot of guidance and saves her life. And um, so, I mean, his an first intriguing act, character. Yeah. His first act in the book is literally to save her from assault. Yeah, uh, when right. she sneaks into the the Kalanmai, right, and and sends her on her way back home, the most beautiful man she'd ever seen. Yes, mm. um, I also like that she she discovers like right when she gets under the mountain that you know Claire has been tortured and killed by Amarantha, and that neither Tamlin nor Reese ever indicated that that was not the right girl. And Reese obviously knew. Like, first of all, he knew it was a fake name. Uh, Second of all, he knew that was not the girl. So Mm -hmm. he, for whatever reason, decided to continue to protect her. And and that he was the one person in the entire place that bet on her in the the first trial. Yeah. I, I also like the moment, too, where he knows that, like, the summer court person was obviously part of some huge plot to try to escape. And he just like, as a mercy kills the guy and lies to Amarantha. So mm-hmm. yeah, he's a complicated character. He's, he's doing some bad things. Uh, but then he very clearly wants out uh, from mm-hmm. under Amarantha's thumb. And and then when Amarantha's giving her all these meaning, you know, meaningless chores and the lentils and this and that, he forbids anybody from forcing her to do any chores, forbids anybody from, touching her or, you know, doing anything else. So he's, it's little things. And, and in a lot of ways it is self-serving for his own ends, but you know, he's, he's doing, doing what he can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He keeps um, her from, he like single-handedly keeps her from breaking under the mountain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's one thing, again, as I said with Tamlin too, I really think how she writes Farah sometimes really works for me in terms of like how she's interacting with the people around her and how her like perceptions of them change every time. Like she says, it's like the last line of that passage 
when he comes, he like licks the tears off her face. And she's like, so gross. Like, Why? So gross. Yeah. But like, then she's like, and I realized like that was the one thing that like stopped me from breaking. And so it all feels that all feels very natural to me. How fair, Farah, as we were given her again, we all wish that she was a little more like proactive sometimes, but like how she moves through these characters and like learns about herself and like them in, in relation to her. I think it all flows really naturally and is really, is really interesting to me. And I think that's highlighted really well in her relationship with Nesta. Yeah. Let's talk about Nesta. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I, this is, I mean, this is not a spoiler necessarily for the books, but the, the fan discourse, I guess, about Nesta Archeron is very divisive. Uh, she is a really kind of vilified character in a lot of ways. Stuff comes up in later books with her that we'll, we'll talk about when we get to them. But a lot of what people point to in continuing not to like Nesta is her behavior towards Farah before Farah goes to Prithian, which is that she like doesn't help at all. She doesn't help and she's mean. And, and she's that's mean. <laughs> essentially, you know, and, and she makes it very clear that Elaine is her priority as far as sisters go, uh, as, far, as far as the entire family. She doesn't even talk to their father. But I think a lot is revealed about Ness. Like I, I was, again, I was rereading this book thinking like, oh, this is going to be Nesta, like her very worst, right? Because I know so many people I was just shocked. absolutely despise her. And I was yeah. like, no, wait, no. no. This is no, a really just, good so quickly, like when Farah goes back to the human land and she starts talking to Nesta, like Nesta is the best. I mean, like she's the only one who remember knows that it's been glamour, knows that Farah's been somewhere else, like cares about and tried it. Tried to all. find her, like was yeah. willing to risk traveling into Prithian by herself after she's never been in the woods to hunt ever, even. And she's willing to go through that wall to Prithian to find Pharaoh. Like she that is not a sister that doesn't care. Yeah. That is not a sister that doesn't care. I love, but, I love this moment where she is reunited with, with Nesta and she's like realizing these things about her. And, um, Pharaoh thinks I looked at my sister, really looked at her at this woman who couldn't stomach the sycophants who now surrounded her, who had never spent a day in the forest, but had gone into wolf territory who had shrouded the loss of our mother, then our downfall in an icy rage and bitterness because the anger had been a lifeline, the cruelty a release. But she had cared. Beneath it, she had cared and perhaps loved more fiercely than I could comprehend, more deeply and loyally. Like, I don't want to I don't want to hear people talking about Feyre being a victim of Nesta after this. No. Feyre knows who Nesta is. She knows what has driven Nesta's actions and her behaviors like she knows where this is coming from and i don't think that that pharaoh would consider herself a victim of nesta no yeah i was totally shocked going back to this i'm like okay this is what everyone points to is why nesta sucks and like we hate nesta and i don't even want to read her book spoiler the fifth book is about nesta Sarah's uh, <laughs> gonna have to do a lot of work to make me like nesta Nesta is great in this book. I, and we have all sorts of thoughts on this. First of all, like if you've listened to like our Grishaverse coverage, like Tasia and I love a, a mean girl. We love Zoya. We love these girls that are mean. And these characters often a lot of time, a lot of people don't like them. And I think it's our internalized misogyny, like just telling us we shouldn't like these characters because there is mm-hmm. not enough here to me to like lay the groundwork for 
five books of hating math. <laughs> so yeah. unlikable women are very difficult characters for, for people, women and men alike to get attached to for some reason. Uh, that's never been the case for Lisa Corinne and I, we, we love a hot mean girl. That is absolutely a tagline of this, of this podcast. <laughs> so um, title. <laughs> but it is, it's absolutely like so much of the time it's these, these prickly sharp edged women that are protecting these like just ooey gooey soft centers. And we need to, I think, really interrogate why we love that in a male character and not in a, in a, in a woman. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times. Yeah. I actually saw a, someone on um, like an Instagram post recently. It was like rereading the series and just had like some quick thoughts. And one of the quick thoughts was like, Farah loves and forgives her sister. So we should maybe too. Mm-hmm. And there's, a, we don't get a lot of Elaine in this book, but Elaine's also a very polarizing figure. And like, that almost seems to me like a, it's true. Yes. But like, I don't think there's a lot to forgive there. I, I don't think Farah ever has this moment where she's like, I have to forgive Nesta for what she did. No, she understands why Nesta is the way that she is for the reasons you just said in that quote, Tasia. So mm-hmm. I, it is uh, kind of uh, mind boggling to me to go back and read this book where she, and she trusts that to send Alice there to Nesta. Like if something happens, like, Nessa's great. She's she's got a journey coming ahead of her in in the rest of these books here, and we'll talk more about it. Maybe our opinions on it all change, but like going back and looking just at this book, it's it's the groundwork for the vilification of her is just not there. I no. just like it, like being hard to love does not make you unworthy of love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, if we're gonna talk about the way that Farah is crafted by like her what happens with her parents like losing her mother and then her father just like doing nothing when they lose everything not everybody's going to deal with it the same way like pharaoh's response is to like go out and learn to hunt and like learn to provide and nesta's is just to be really pissed at everyone and protect elaine because that's all that she can do and it's just as much like from that trauma as what pharaoh does and Elaine's like, I don't know, obsession with gardening and like trying to preserve beauty in her life is like a different way of dealing with that. Right. You've I don't got wanna... the pretty trauma responses and you've got the ugly trauma responses. Mm-hmm. And so many times we want to say, oh, the pretty trauma response is the right trauma response, but there isn't yeah. a right one. Yeah. Or, or Feyre's trauma response is the more like actively heroic one. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, like if we, if we, don't, if we don't say any of this to discount what Feyre does. She does keep her family alive. Like that's very valuable. Uh, but they all process that in in different ways. But when it counts, Nesta is there. Like I said, mm-hmm, she goes yeah. through the wall and Fair thinks like Nesta would do this for me and Elaine. Like she loves fiercely. And it's it's a lot. And this is not the first <laughs> Nesta soapbox you're gonna hear us step on. on I was <laughs> so deeply in my Nesta feelings this entire book, which yeah. I was absolutely not expecting at all, even as a person who has liked Nesta the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was getting ready to like uh, put on my devil's advocate hat and like right. defend her conduct in this book, but I shouldn't have to. Yeah, she's yeah. fine. Yeah, I love Nesta. I mean, I also love Zoya. So yes, you do. Also I'm sorry to not have girl. I'm sorry not to have uh, looped you in with that, Aubrey. I know that you do as well. We need and... we need like uh, some sort of like hot mean girl fan club t-shirt. <laughs> 
Yeah, like who would be on it? It would be Zoya. It would be Nesta. It would be my girl uh, Cordelia. Because as oh yes, know, Cordelia, absolutely perfect for the first time. Oh my gosh, uh, there's got to be more. But yeah, we yeah we do love them. They're great. So uh, I mean, that's a pretty good triumph for it, right there. It is. Oh my god, my queens. I love them. Uh, okay, so uh, any other big things before we get into spoilers here? I guess I want to briefly shout out Lucian, who mm-hmm. is another polarizing character in the fandom, and I love him. I don't understand why, because I adore him. I remember consistently, even in my first read, when I was like unsure if I liked the books at all, I remember really liking him the entire time. Oh, yeah. Lucian was probably like my favorite character when yeah. I read this the first time, but like... I always, I mean, in addition to loving a hot mean girl, I love like a sarcastic ginger. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yes. That's, yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> 100% time. So like, another shirt, like, we've got the Ron Weasleys. We've got the solutions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's um, my dating history attests. Sarcastic <laughs> ginger is a real weak spot for me. Uh, that's really funny. I mean, I do get it. Oh, so I don't really get to, I say this, um, as someone who does really like him, I don't really like get why he is so, I know he's like very mad at Farah for killing his friend, which like I get which, why she had to do that. So it is, it's kind of cruel of him to send her after the, sh- the surreal, surreal knowing what like is, is that's going to be like a dangerous situation for her. So he does kind of like put her in a couple of positions early on that aren't great, but he also is, he's trying to walk this balancing act too of like, he acknowledges Tamlin's moods. Like he, he's trying to like keep him happy. And so, so I, I get the criticism of like, why is Lucian like kind of such a dick to fair? Like she mm-hmm. is your last hope. In a lot of I ways. Mean, and he is also the only other one besides Reese under the mountain that sticks his neck out for her. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in, that first challenge when he yells for her and then has helped heal her like before that. And yeah, like he puts his own life at risk. Um, I think it is a part of that is I think what Farah says that like, he doesn't really remember how breakable humans are in comparison to the Fae to a certain extent. So like some of the stuff where he puts her in danger, he knows he's putting her in some danger, but I think he feels like a silly prank. Yeah, he under undervalues how dangerous that actually would be for Farah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His backstory always too like really hurts my heart mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. I read this once on a Tumblr post, and I don't know if it's true, but like when she outlined her plan for all of like the later books in this world, that he would be a main book, and it's all I want in the world is Lucian book. Like, please give I would it to love me. That. Please give it to me. It's all I want. Um, one last thing. Uh, I don't know if you guys feel this way or maybe Aubrey if it ties into the myth. I guess it does in all of these cases, but I just like don't love the whole idea that ultimately the big villain in this book is like Amarantha, who's a woman who's just like obsessed with a man and then like goes crazy when she can't have him. Yeah. I love that. Generally. I mean, Hamlin of all people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Really girl. Come on now. (laughs) I think that does tie back into the myth because like it's Aphrodite um, or Venus. Sorry, it's Venus. It would be Aphrodite. It's Greek. Uh, I get them all confused. It's Aphrodite. Well, so yeah, there's yeah. the Greek and and um, yeah, Roman version. Yeah, it's in both. Um, you know, it's the troll princess and her mother. Um, and, and it's like a 
crone in Beauty and the Beast, right? Who like yeah. mm-hmm. curses him. Um, I mean, that, that one says like he's like for being away. Yeah, yeah. You know, mythology yeah. and folklore loves loves their and, evil women. Yeah, they love their true. evil women. They love their evil queen. And fairy queens are like significant in a lot of yeah. like fae and fairy mythology. So. Yeah. That kind of makes sense to me that they're they're pulling that with Amarantha. Um, yeah, it's funny yeah. we're talking about this. I have a cross stitch like hanging on my wall right next to me that says, "The hag in folklore actually is symbolic of men being afraid that when women get older, will uh, will realize how shit they really are and eat them, which is fair and they should be." <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that's I love it so much. Uh, that's perfect. Yeah. Uh, all right. Should we go into spoiler territory? Should we do some superlatives first in case people want to drop off and they can get the superlatives first? Yeah, that's smart. Okay. All right. So favorite quote. Uh, I'll go for Tasia. Tasia just says what Corinne said. So this is mine and Tasia's favorite quote. This is from Resand. Be glad of your human heart, Farah. Pity those who don't feel anything at all. Nice moment. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, as we said, Mass is not really a pro stylist. No. So it was a, there's not yeah. a, a ton of like great quotes in this book. Um, I mean, she she comes up with some good ones. Like yeah. She has her moments. Um, so the one I picked is actually Pharaoh's father says this to her, um, which is, we need hope as much as we need bread and meat. He interrupted his eyes clear for a rare moment. We need hope or else we cannot endure. And I think that's the one. I like that sentiment. It's a little hallmarky, but you know, we'll take it. <laughs> All right, favorite character and favorite character Arctasia. Favorite character uh, Lucian and Reese. I know we didn't get that much about Reese, but I was kind of you know instantly imprinted on him as I am want to do. And then probably Farah for Ark. I think she she has a big old journey in this one. Yeah, yeah, Aubrey. I that was the same. I put Lucian and, and Reese and then Farah's arc. I don't really know that anyone else gets like a big arc yeah. in this book the way that Farah does. So yeah. Um I didn't I guess arcs are yet to come anyway. So it's yeah. kind of a tip of the iceberg stuff. And Nesta a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna say Lucian because I still am not forgiving of Reese and drugging Farah. Fair. Don't like it, despite some other things that I do like from him in this book. I, I just remember the first time I read this book, I like walked away from it and I was just kind of like pissed off at all the guys in this book except Lucian. So that's mm-hmm. why I'm gonna say Lucian's my favorite character. And then Arc, yeah, I mean it's it's gotta be Farah. She definitely comes into her own more and like makes decisions in a stronger way, even though I don't necessarily like love some of the decisions that she makes or the reasons why she makes them. Uh, but it's just the beginning of her journey, really. So uh, and then soon moment. You two have the yeah. good ones. Yeah, I'll <laughs> go first. I don't, I'm not going to read all of this because it's very long. Yeah. But there is a moment, I think it's the summer solstice where they're mm-hmm. together and Tamlin is playing music and he says, dance, Farah. And she does. And she talks, she's loosened a top whirling around and around. I didn't know who I danced with or what they looked like, only that I become the music and the fire in the night and there was nothing that could slow me down. And then Tamlin grins at me. I didn't break my dancing as he rose from his seat and knelt before me in the grass, offering up a solo on his fiddle to me. Music just for me, a gift. 
And then she opens her eyes and she's dancing with Tamlin. And it's just like the peak moment for their romance where they really come together. And it's a really, I think actually like beautiful and sort of swoony moment of him like playing for her and then dancing with her. It is um, sweet. Yeah. Okay, what do you got? Let me preface this. Um, this is after battle's done. Fair has been reawoken as a high fame. Amaranth is dead. And um, she is talking to Reese. I stared at the nose I'd seen bleeding only hours before at the violet eyes that had been so filled with pain. Why? I asked. He knew what I meant and shrugged. Because when the legends get written, I didn't want to be remembered for standing on the sidelines. I want my future offspring to know I was there and that I fought against her at the end, even if I couldn't do anything useful. I blinked, this time not at the brightness of the sun. Because, he went on, his eyes locked with mine. I didn't want you to fight alone or die alone. Good. And, like, we didn't really talk about it, but the fact that Reese, like, was the first one to turn on Amarantha at the end when she was attacking Feyre... Like the only thing that Farrah hears in those moments is Rhysand screaming her name. Like he barely knows her and he's like invested, you know, and yeah. uh, throws himself against her before like their power is restored, trying to protect Farrah. I just, you know, it's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I have two moments. I like, I like the moment where they're exchanging paintings or Tamlin comes to look at Farrah's paintings and he says he wants the one of the woods where she hunted because it's like, even though she painted like his like magic lake or whatever, he wants that one because it's like very it's true to her, and they have a nice moment of like recognition of each other then. But this is a good moment of a of how like she writes like heat really well in like moments. And I remember reading this moment in the book because I had no idea what was going on. It's the night before the last trial, and it's before he like drags her into that room and they just like make out and it's like, okay, yeah, you should have done more to save her, but this is how it goes before then. They're out in the party. I went rigid when I smelled that rain and earth and scent and didn't dare to turn to Tamlin. We stood side by side, staring out at the crowd as still and unnoticeable as statues. His fingers brushed mine and a line of fire went through me, burning so badly that my eyes prickled with tears. I wished, wished he wasn't touching my marred hand that his fingers didn't have to the contours of that wretched tattoo but i lived in that moment my life became beautiful again for those few seconds when our hands grazed and i think that just a really that passage like gets to me every time because the end is like looking upon them the next day and like it, this might be all they have and feels very desperate yeah yeah, yeah the, the longing the yearning she thinks so much about how much she misses him during that whole that whole time and I think it's just, it's a really powerful moment for the two of them. So I like it. Yeah. Spoiler section. Spoiler yeah. section. Turn back so now. if you have not read the rest of the Akatar series, now is where you would drop off. And we will see you next time after you have read a little bit more. Oh man, so that was hard. <laughs> I know. I mean, I like I knew it wasn't gonna be able to like really rain in my Tamlin feelings. A lot of people like Tamlin from the beginning, and that's what I was kind of like alluding to, like how I, I didn't because I, I'm old enough, I'm mature enough. I get if you're maybe like a younger reader, you are drawn in a lot by him. And I wasn't, I was just like pissed at everyone when I finished this book. And I I've told this story before to Tasia of like friend of the pod. Jenna, I like had like a FaceTime call with her and she was in the middle of book two or like almost done with book two. And I was just ranting about it. I was like, 
I don't, I don't even know if I want to keep reading. Like I, and I know Ruby Sand is the ultimate love interest of this series, but I'm pissed at him because he drugged her. And also like, they're just going to brush all this Tamlin shit under the rug and never touch it. Like, no, like we, I, I like that. She's not going to be with him, but like he needs to be held accountable. And, you know, didn't she just really wallop us over the head in the next <laughs> book and address all of that? Mm-hmm. Um, so jokes on me, SJM, like you did it. You tricked me. I really yeah. appreciate that follow through on Tamlin and his like aggressive tendencies from me the first too. book because it is such a red flag. And I think that gets romanticized so much. Um, and there's so many young, young readers out there that I, I you know, it, it worries me uh, about some of them getting influenced by this stuff and thinking like, oh, the guy who punches the wall, he does it for passion because he's, he's just so in love with you and this and that. But no, she doubles down on that in, in the next book. And you see just it doesn't seem that abusive in the first book, but it is. And she hammers that home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that it's just, I didn't hate Tamlin after reading a court of thorns and roses. Like he wasn't my favorite. I wasn't like, Oh man, I'm swooning over Tamlin ever. But then you come back to that second book and it's just like, Oh, okay. Yeah. We're going to like, nothing's getting better. It's getting worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and that it feels like really true to his character. Like going back and rereading this book after reading those, I'm like, you can see all of the warning signs and where it's coming mm-hmm. from, you know, even without, which I, I mean, we're there, but I think you didn't know what direction right. it was going to go. So it, it is really good. I do really like that about these yeah. books so that she kind of like. Right. doesn't ignore all of that I think she does really well is the the mental health stuff and like we'll see that later down the road with Nesta's journey and in mm-hmm. Farah during you know Akamath I think she she does handle that kind of like the trauma and, and dealing with that and confronting with it pretty well yeah one of the most one of the, like the turning points for Reese and Farah in the next book is where she where they, they do this thing where they like tell each other like tell me something you're thinking or tell me three things you're thinking or whatever. And he, she goes, I'm thinking about how, like, I just was so like, I'm summarizing here. I'll read the quote when we do the next episode, but I was like, so starved for comfort. I fell in love with the first person who offered me a shred of anything. And like going back and looking at that, it's there in like Mm -hmm. a really clever way. She thinks um, things like my life was now owned by the treaty. Perhaps I'd been freed in another sort of way. Um, So that's like thinking about the positive things. Like she, she had this horrible life and he gives her a good life in a lot of ways. She's very taken in by the the colors of the spring court and she'd love to paint and all the food. She'd never had that much food in her life, but she also says things like this. He'd saved my life, like some kind of feral night in a legend. And I gulped it down like fairy wine. So she's clocking some of the bad things too, but ultimately in the first book and where she's at, those bad things are outweighed by all the good things and all of the comfort that he is providing her, not just emotionally, but physical comfort for the first time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he asked her at one point, has anyone ever taken care of you? And the answer is no, he's yeah. the first person to take care of her. Uh, so it all, it all makes sense. And so that for me, ultimately going forward is that recognition of it's not just that Tamlin was bad, in a lot of ways because those flags were were there for some level and for for all of us i think but it's that we're acknowledging why sh- she was susceptible to mm-hmm. it and I just, yeah. it's it's so good um yeah. 
but it's, it's, so it's really, really smart. It's really smart to go back and, and see that all there. And I like it. You know, I was one of the other things that I was surprised about though, is like how Reese is actually this book. like, you think it's like a big switcheroo. And I don't think that the switcheroo then in the book too is necessarily that Reese isn't as bad as we thought. Cause he's good in this book for a lot of it, minus the drugging. It's yeah. that affairs reaction to it. <laughs> I just remember that TikTok I sent you of the like male characters, like what they would do on their PowerPoint presentation. And, and Reese is like, I'm a feminist and like in small print, it's like, stop bringing up the drugging thing that happened one time <laughs> gosh it, it did oh, happen man. one time i don't think his excuse is particularly great for it when we get there but like no. whatever i mean on the balance he's he's right. a phenomenal person yeah <laughs> i love him a lot and so it's fun so obviously like again in retrospect he's very kind of clearly the type of character that we all I think have gravitated to in a lot of these books, which is like dark and kind of edgy, but like, Ooh, there's something more to you. Like I see it. Mm-hmm. I thought it's really fun my, to reread. My question is, cause again, I don't remember that much going ahead. What was it like? Was there something already in the, the mating bond thing that was making him want to reach out and like protect her from all this other stuff? Cause I know when the bond snaps into place at the end of the book, but he has spent pretty much the entire book before that protecting her. Yeah. He, yes. Yeah. He, uh, yeah. uh in brief, he goes to Cal and Mai for a reason, like, he, he says, I had my own reasons for being out that night. And the reason was because he had already started to have that connection with okay. Kyra. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, go, we'll save some of those details for the next book. But yeah, mm-hmm. and the, um, the bond is how he's... I'm always kind of confused. I do think it is more the mating bond that allows him to communicate with her more so than just the tattoo. But maybe it is also the tattoo. I think it's... Because at that point, it hasn't snapped into place. But That's he's... True. I think the combination of like the bargain tattoo and the bond and then just like his powers in general, because I think, cause he can talk to more than just Farah in yeah. their heads makes it stronger and like makes him able to, to do some of the things there that he does. Yeah. I mean, when you think about like knowing what's coming now, you're like, Oh, the Reese's introduction is saving Farah from being assaulted like obviously he's a hero right and there's there's so much like night court foreshadowing too like Mm -hmm. when fairy describes the dresser where she's painted each of their drawers something like she she paints elaine's drawer as as a flower she paints you know because that's elaine her entire Mm -hmm. personality apparently um and then she paints nesta's drawer as like fire because nesta's so fierce and she paints her own drawer as like a night sky yeah yeah Although interestingly, Sarah J. Mass said the reason that Nesta's drawer was flames in the first book was that she was going to pair her with Lucian. That was her first thought in the first really? draft. And then so she had said that don't don't look into the flames as being like a connection to the autumn court and like the or no, not even the autumn court, but like oh, who's he the heir of summer? Whatever. Mm-hmm. Basically, she did that as a Lucian connection, but she's like, obviously that didn't happen. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, thankfully it works out like in different interpretations. Yeah, it does. It does. So. It totally does. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I definitely would read that. It's hard then. This comes up when it comes to like, who's Elaine going to end up with and like things like that. It's hard to look at some of the earlier books because she did change some things. Um, yeah. So you can't really take everything she says as like canon. Or as I wonder if she like hint. originally wanted to put Elaine with Tamlin because she mentions a few times like, oh, if Elaine could see this spring court, like she would fall in love with it. Yeah, she would love it so much. God, thank mm. God that's not hopefully a thing ever. Yeah, I, I um, still still I still see people talking about that, like theorizing it that that's going to be like a thing. And I'm like, acting like Elaine is is Tamlin's like redemption prize. And I'm like, no, oh, let's let's not it, do that. His, his redemption for me is enough of where he's at at the end of Act right. Like I don't need more. Yeah, um, we'll get when we get there. I also just think you know there's some other fun little hints too, like stay with the High Lord, which the serial says mm-hmm. like that applies to Reese, not to Tamlin she says to like her whore I might be or Greece says her whore I might be but not without my reasons you know obviously he wants to break the curse too but he's also very much trying to protect the secret of the night court mm-hmm. and he does that a lot um this like, really broke me a little bit rereading because we know it like chapter 55 the famous chapter of Akamath where they like finally get it on Reese left his wings out and it's the only person he's ever like been intimate with with his wings out is Farah, his mate and he like shows her his wings in that moment in her his room and he says i tell very few people about the wings or the flying like the things that i love have a tendency to be taken from me and like yeah. so that he's showing her that in that moment it's just like he can't help himself even though he doesn't know for sure um that it is the mating bond yet at that point although for me this is my actual favorite soon i can say it now that we're in the spoiler section it's the famous line of there you are i've been looking for you like <laughs> yeah it's not like she thinks it's just him like inventing a story but like he's really just he's there to rescue her but like no yeah i mean he's her like mate I just, mm. and the fact that like he doesn't say anything about it in this book or like he never like pushes himself on her while he's saving her, like tries to take Tamlin's place in her affections while he's like the one helping her get through all of this. He never acts jealous about Tamlin to like, no. yeah, he's more like poking at like, why is Tam- like, get your hand, like get Just your mind out of the gutter and like, like work to get out of the situation. You two like mm-hmm. stop being mm-hmm. like lust addled fools. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he, he walks a very like fine line. He doesn't give anything away really. Like there is that moment where she's like, what does he say? She's like, why are you telling me this? And what does he say in response? That's something nice in response at that point. And then obviously the quote that you read, Tasia. Those are probably his like his biggest emotional vulnerability moments. So yeah, I didn't just, want you to die alone thing. Just yeah, it hurts me. Yeah, that like good luck to us next week when I just want to read R.I.P. all of, <laughs> all of chapter of chapter fifty four. Like his whole like basically mm-hmm. soliloquy about all the things that he did that led up to him. It's like I can't. But yeah, so that's all I think. It's also Feyre thinking about the like oh I wonder if like I don't I don't even know if a high lady is possible. It's a fun little mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't it wild though to like read this book and be like I have we 
have no idea who Cassian and Azrael and Amran and more are. Like we don't have I any missed of them. them. I know. It's, yeah. I had to go ahead and like just go straight on to the next yeah. two books. <laughs> I, I was know. like, I, don't blame I need you. my people. I know. Yeah. I do think though, like I when I rated this again on Goodreads, I still gave it three stars. I don't think it stands well on its own because I have the, all the issues I have with it. And then if like you just if you were just to read this book, and we do know people who have just read this book and like walked away because it's like it's romanticizing this abusive relationship, and it's like yeah, but like that's the point. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. she gets there. Um, it is hard to. Just on its own, I don't necessarily love it, but it does. It does. The ending of it is very clear. Like we're not done. Like she's not mm-hmm. in a good place when they leave under the mountain yeah. to go back to the spring court. So yeah, um, it's 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 worth going on that journey. Any other like fun little nuggets? Yeah, I want to uh, just mention a couple of the Nesta things. Farah thinks no limits. I thought there were no limits to what Nesta might do, what she might make of herself once she found a place to call her own. I prayed I would be lucky enough to someday see it. And I just love that, like, because Nesta has such a journey in in A Court of Silver Flames, and, you know, she does get to see it. She does. I did say, I feel like we should, like, just briefly talk about the fact that there's going to be a TV show. Yes. um, Yeah. That Ron Moore is producing, who famously did the wonderfully sexy Outlander, as well as the... I mean, actually, Battlestar Galactica also has some, like, sexy stuff in it. Let's let's not lie to ourselves. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm, like, for Hulu, I mean, I kind of think, I don't know if y'all think that they'll age people up a little bit, just so that, like, yeah, they can be sexy on screen without worrying about, like, ages and things like that. I think they will, probably. It'll be more like, instead of 1925, you know? Yeah. The thing is, like, why do we even have to, like, bring up her age? Like, we don't have to, I feel. Like, just let her be, like, some 20-something. And, like, why does it matter? The Mm -hmm. Fae are all 500 years old. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people are are already getting, like, very precious about this show. Um, I'm not very much because I I think there's enough to improve in the source material that, like, I don't mind if a lot of things get changed. So I'm kind of just curious to see what those things will be. Yeah. I, in some ways, I think it'll be easier. I mean, for me, for this to be like a show that I really like, because I think there is so much yeah. room for improvement. I mean, it's kind mm-hmm. of like in the Grishaverse, because I had feelings about some of the characters, like yeah. the show, because it had so much room to improve on that. Like it, I think had less of an uphill battle, whereas like, if it's a perfect book, it can be really difficult to. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a perfect example. Yeah, See it translated. Yeah, and I think too, like I just, I just for me, like where I'm at with it mentally is like the experience of reading chapters fifty four and fifty five of Akamath for the first time was like really special, and like the show is never going to be able to replicate it because it's like the surprise and it's like the emotional resonance of like building through a lot of this and sitting through, quite frankly, some moments in these books that are just like oh I can't believe it and like if it is going to change some of those things I think the impact of that might be a little awesome not that it won't still be good but like Mm -hmm. that is for me one of the more like singular reading experiences I've ever had where I was like oh oh no like I ow I ouch my heart like and I don't think it can replicate that and if it does get anywhere close I'll be pleasantly surprised that I just like I don't think that it yeah. can. Like, it's just a reading experience that was really special. 
Yeah. Um, they don't know. I mean, at least you'll always have that though. Yeah, exactly. So I'll think as long as they've got like some sexy people doing sexy, great things, it'll be good. Yeah. I mean, that's, I kind of trust Ron Moore to do that. I have the, you know, I don't know if you guys watched, if you all watched Outlander at all, but like the wedding night scene. I've watched like four seasons. Yeah. I was going to say, I think he's really, really good at bringing really deep emotion into sex scenes and making Mm -hmm. them so much more than people humping on screen. Yeah. And I think it's funny because obviously Ron Moore is a man, but that that wedding night scene feels like a little more female gazy actually for mm-hmm. a sex scene, Absolutely. which is unusual. So I I also am optimistic about the show incorporating that um, because it could go really poorly the other way otherwise <laughs> with all of this. Yeah. Um although I don't um, know I, I've watched like two seasons of Outlander. I've never read the books, but I know a lot of the things that people have problems with are things that come from the source material, mm-hmm. like the Jamie rape and the end of the end of season one or whatever. And those weren't changed. Yeah. So like, who knows? Like what, to what extent it's going to be so faithful. But I do think even in just the few, however many years since the first season of Outlander premiered, I think people's, um, willingness to engage with that is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe we'll see um, how that. Yeah. Goes. I also think Diana Gabaldon is um, a particular person who does not would not endorse any changes uh, and is very willing to weaponize her fan base. Again, you said that much nicer than I would have. Yeah, criticism and mis and uh, what she feels like is misinterpretation of her work, and um, including the TV show. So I don't know that. I think that would have been difficult for them to make changes for Out uh, for Outlander because I think Diana would not permit it, and she's scary. not. Yeah, she she is very <laughs> scary. Yeah. She sent her fans after a friend of mine one time. Oh my God. No, I do not read Diana Gabaldon any longer. She's yeah. uh, yeah, And and the stuff and the problematic stuff in her books is deeply, deeply terrible. Um, So problematic. And And she just sticks her feet in the mud and she's like, Nope, this is not what you think it is. Despite thousands and thousands and thousands of you saying that it is. Yeah. yeah. And uh and don't call it romance. It's definitely historical fiction. Yeah. It's insulting. She's, she's too good for romance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's, no, that's fine. And we'll talk about some of the quote unquote like problematic things of these books going forward, but it does seem like that's a word that is used a little too loosely sometimes. And I think maybe mm-hmm. too loosely applied to Sarah J. Mass. It's just like it's it's heteronormative and things that I don't necessarily like a lot of but i think the super problematic i don't there are some things but i think across the board it's not as as bad as uh yeah other authors that we've (laughs) and the thing that i think about are like she's not very good at writing diversity right and Mm -hmm. she tried not well in future books but she like kind of tries yeah so i think if like i think there's room there like if people are like we're going to cast diversely like she's not going to push back against that because she knows it's needed she's just Mm -hmm. not good at doing it yeah Um, i would love this cast to be diverse that would be awesome yeah the 
especially because she is very ambiguous about a lot of that stuff in text. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she likes to point to it and say like, no, no, this is yeah, no, girl, Honey, that is doesn't she? count, but yeah. it can be used when casting. Yeah. It's, yes. It can be used when casting. And I think that'll be great. And yeah, like you said, Tasha, precious is a great word. People are going to be very precious about this casting. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, we tried off air to engage in some casting speculation. And it's like, well, first of all, we're all too old now, I think, to really yeah. know who's, who's young and hot. Yeah. <laughs> but we, I, I just hope they kind of find unknowns, but also I hope that the, this fandom, which is like one of the grosser fandoms sometimes to be a part of, it's very, um, I think because of the nature of the the very like non-diverse heteronormative uh, uh, topics that we kind of get here, it draws in people who aren't willing to more critically engage. And then it leads to some very ugly things. Um, I, I know there was one girl whose name got tossed around as potential for Feyre and people like bullied her off Twitter for being too heavy. And like, it's just, it's gross. Like It's one of yeah. the more toxic fandoms that I've, yeah, and I've that's- seen. I, I will say, I think that that's not, that unfortunately is not a thing that's unique to like this fandom because I remember people's reactions to Jennifer Lawrence getting cast as Katniss mm-hmm. as her like mm-hmm. not being skinny enough. Jennifer freaking Lawrence. Oscar um, winning actress Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, like that she was like too big to play Katniss. Like, are you kidding me? So it feels like something that is. I mean, I hate to say that, but they're a little bit in some of the YA fandom stuff too, that they're like very particular to that mm-hmm. body type or like very specific, like it has to be exactly like it's described in the book or else we're going to freak out. And we have, I mean, as teens, you have a lot of messed up body image issues anyway. So it kind of makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Well, book yeah. one. <laughs> we did it. We done did it. Um, I was like, oh yeah, maybe like I don't have a lot to talk about this one. <laughs> Why do I keep telling myself this lie? You love to lie to yourself. I yeah, to lie to myself. But this was very fun. I, I no, I was nervous because I don't love this book, even though I love this series. So I was nervous about how much we would be able to talk to, and especially without spoiling. And I think we. Uh, did a good job because our feelings are our feelings regardless of what we ultimately know the, mm-hmm. about the rug pulling being pulled out in terms of where the relationships end up in this it's um i'm really excited for next week when we talk about book two in the series a court of mist and fury return of special guest jesse get get ready for the big uh resand show because that's his book baby and mm-hmm. i'm excited for it before we go Aubrey, where can our listeners find you online if they'd like to yeah um i'm on twitter and instagram as obs bobs yeah pretty much anywhere on the internet you can find me on obs bobs Asia, you can find me on instagram and twitter at ragey cakes and i'm on instagram at rin underscore reads you can find the podcast on instagram at twitter at actia age Shoot us an email you'd like at actyagepod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. Get us up in those search results. Yeah, and help uh, people find us. And also, uh, maybe if we start getting some some more reviews, we could start reading some. Oh, wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. I would like to do that. So yeah, do that. 
<laughs> and do it. <laughs> uh, please. Please read that. Ellie, you're playing both good cop and yeah, bad cop right now. It's really late at night when we're recording this. I've had a long day, so I might edit this out. I might not. I'm getting slap happy. All right, friends. Thank you so much for joining us on part one of our massive summer binge. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.